0: Hi, and welcome back to episode two of What Are We Really Fighting? Today, we are gonna talk about COVID-19. It is a hot topic in America as it is affecting everybody in one way or another, and we have a lot of states that are starting the reopening phases, and a lot of people have some vastly different opinions about that, the American people, our government leaders, our experts, Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's been looking at data, and so one of the things I wanted to talk about here today was remembering why we started stay-at-home orders in the first place, remembering kind of how this all happened. I'm not going to do a timeline, but I want to focus on why we did this in the first place and I actually started this report, or writing this report, this article, a week ago, and since then I've got some information to add to it, so I'm going to do that here today. I had done a Google or YouTube video, and so I've got a little bit more information that I'm adding to it today, and I'm actually going to break it into two. So I'm going to talk about COVID-19 and remembering why we started stay-at-home orders in the first place today. And then in the third episode, we're going to talk about the government's response and if it was infringing on our constitutional rights. So I think it's really important that as an American citizen, we are aware of everything that's happening around us and that's happening to us. And so that way we can make our best decision on how it is that we want to proceed and what we are going to fight for when it comes to our rights as an American but today, we are going to be focusing on COVID-19 and why we started these stay-at-home orders, because like I mentioned, the states are starting the reopening phases, and some of the phases are numbered, some of the phases are colored, but one way or another, the states are going to be reopening. And there are lots of opinions, like I said, whether it's coming from the experts, whether it's coming from the government leaders, it's coming from the American citizens, there are opinions about the fact that it's happening, how it's happening, and the timetable in which it's taken to get to this point. But it's really important that we remember why the stay-at-home orders were put into effect in the first place. And that was so the healthcare system wouldn't be overtaxed. Not just for the COVID-19 patients, but really more importantly for the patients that would need immediate hospital attention and life-saving surgeries. That was the curve we were trying to flatten. We didn't want there to be additional casualties of this virus because we didn't have the resources. A lot of the models would show how many beds each state had altogether that were available. And they also had the ICU beds. And so for many of our states, the amount of COVID-19 hospitalizations would exceed the total number of beds that the state had available in their hospital. And that would lead none for people who had something immediate come up. As a nation, we chose to stretch out the spread. So we had enough time to make supplies that we didn't currently have. And so those supplies were ventilators, personal protection equipment, including masks, tests. Test was really important. We didn't have enough tests at the beginning of this to even see who had the virus and who didn't. And the other thing was extra beds. We wanted the ability to make up pop-up hospitals. So if certain areas and certain hospitals were overwhelmed, we could create hospital situations to take care of COVID patients while freeing up hospital beds for people who were needing surgeries. So that was the Navy boats and these um, pop-up tent hospitals that were created. But we had to make all that happen, especially since we had shut the borders. And we just were not prepared for a virus of this magnitude. A really big question that has come up a lot is, should we have been prepared? And yes, in terms that the U.S. had been warned of a surprise pandemic or a pandemic coming, we should have been prepared. And uh, in 1983, a public emergency fund was created for this type of situation, but in the last 20 years, it has not had an influx of cash flow. And then in 2019, an infectious disease rapid response reserve fund was created. And initially, $50 million was put in, then $85 million, and then in the fiscal year 2021 budget, another $50 million has been added to it. So, we started working to make sure that we were getting financially prepared, which is really important. But when it comes in terms of making sure that we knew we were going to have just the right amount of supplies that were being stored away for a rainy day occasion, that's really hard to do because you never know what that pandemic is going to be. In 2009, 2010, the H1N1 swine flu came through. And that is a different virus than COVID-19. So when SARS came through, that's a different virus than than this COVID-19. While they're part of the coronavirus family, COVID-19 is a, is a mutated virus. And so to know exactly what virus is coming and what exactly you're gonna need, that's hard to predict. But to know that we are financially prepared to make things happen, that is really important. And it's important because like, this is a very dangerous virus that came. So regardless of any curves being flattened, the virus itself, COVID-19, has a long spread factor. So the amount of people that could possibly get this virus before anyone knew it was spreading, it, that was huge. And it's important to remember that. The flu is like a one or two day spread virus. COVID-19, you know, was anywhere from five to 14 days before you knew that you were even spreading it. The virus also really wreaks havoc on your body so when you get the seasonal flu you're sick for about seven days. COVID-19 it could be up to 14 days that you're sick and even in its mild state like I said it lasts about double the time of the seasonal flu and this virus has never been seen before in humans and that's what makes it so dangerous and the fact that we don't really know any potential long-term effects. At the time that the talks of the shutdown started, leaders were making decisions based on the knowledge we were given from other countries and what we were experiencing ourselves. Our country was carefully watching what was happening and we started to take action as soon as we felt it was necessary. Experts were compiled, models were looked at and decisions were having to be made. Then as a country, like I said before, we realized we didn't have the equipment that we needed. We didn't have enough in-house ventilators because now we knew that's what we needed. So we didn't have the ventilators. We didn't have the personal protection equipment. We didn't have the extra beds. And we didn't have the tests to adequately take care of our country. But once we did, once we had that, then the federal government started to talk about reopening the country, So the media spent a lot of time talking about these death numbers when the Imperial College came out and said 2.2 million Americans are going to die if they do nothing. That's a huge number. That's a really big, scary number. But as developments started to happen, as we started to take action, that number decreased and decreased and decreased. And so we went down to about half a million and then 200,000, then finally about 64,000. And we have actually exceeded that number to date. We're at about 82,000 according to the CDC. So roughly about 82,200 deaths. And according to the IHME projections, which is a, a, it's a model that's, it's founded, funded by the Bill Gates Foundation, but it's actually been pretty conservative When looking at these numbers, um, when the government was talking about 200,000 deaths, this model was predicting about 134,000. So it's it's more of a conservative model, but it's at 147,000 projected deaths as of August 4th, 2020. And so even though these death numbers seem really high, that's really not what was being looked at. It's important because we don't want the loss of any American lives. But really what was important was our healthcare system. And those are the numbers that took priority when we were doing what we were doing as a nation. Because of some of the actions that we took, those potential death numbers, those high numbers, they decrease. So like I said, the 200,000, and then it went down to the 60, and now it's going back up as we're starting to reopen, which everyone would figure would happen. You know, those numbers are fluctuating. But that, those really big potential death numbers, even that, that 2.2 million, that decreased. And as a result of that, it really led people to think maybe we were overreacting because they seemed to really just plummet down. So a lot of people started to think we were overreacting. But the fact is, because of those actions that we took, we're never going to know that counterfactual data. We will never know what would have happened if we had done nothing. And that is always at play when you make a decision. Hindsight's always 20 because you can take the time to really sit down and analyze your decision. You can really look at the data. When you're in the midst of the perceived crisis though, that's affecting over 300 million people, leaders have to act swiftly and relying on the knowledge of the experts that they have consulted. These experts that have been vetted, these experts that are the top of their field. Decisions always come with a risk factor and our country leaders as a whole, Republican and Democrat, everyone, they decided to take the risk of temporarily shuttering the economy while we got a handle on what was coming. Even states that were originally opposed to this idea enacted some sort of social distancing protocol that would limit gatherings in their states. All 50 states issued some type of state public health emergency and the president issued a disaster declaration on all states for the first time in history. So, but all through this, we can't rewrite why we were here in the first place. We were not prepared for this virus. We were not prepared to handle the amount of sick that we were witnessing in Europe and Asia. We were not adequately prepared to take the chance that the immense amount of hospitalizations they were predicting would come true. We are a country of 328 million people as of 2019, We have tested just over 3% of the US population. We have had many recover and we've had many deaths. So according to the CDC, we've had about 244,000 recoveries and we are at about 82,000 deaths. We have exceeded that 64,000 conservative number of deaths that our numbers went down to when social distancing was enacted across the majority of our country. And also during this time, we've stopped, we've really stopped talking about that second and third wave. So we're in the midst of a first wave. And we don't know what that second and that third wave is going to bring, especially because a vaccine is about a year away at best. But you've also got a lot of people saying they're not going to take that vaccine because it feels new and it feels rushed. We also have to remember that this virus is attacking those with weakened immune systems. And it seems to be keeping the younger generation unaffected. And that's only what we know of at this point, because again, this is a new virus. And in fact, since I started working on this about a week and a half ago, there is this new virus. It's an inflammatory disease that's affecting children. Now, a lot of people are calling it Kawasaki, that we've had it but they're linking that it's happening because of COVID-19. So, that's just something new because we have this new virus. We don't know we don't know all of the long-term impacts of this virus and how it's going to affect everybody. But we also need to remember in addition to why the stay-at-home orders were originally put in place, protecting our healthcare system, not overtaxing it. We also need to remember that we elect leaders with the idea that they will make decisions in our best interest, decisions for everyone, and not just a single group. We unfortunately live in a time where we are so deeply divided that it seems why we forget those to elect those leaders, why we do that. It was not just state governments that closed down, it was the federal government as well. So while we were working to get the supplies that were needed. The president was talking to us at his White House press briefings every day and mentioned that he was in contact with the governors of every state. He was talking to them. He was working through things. He was working with them to be able to safely and effectively reopen the country. While he tried to get things running after 15 days, he took the advice of his medical counsel, his experts, and he chose to keep things closed longer. Once he told the American people that we had reached a point that we had enough supplies to handle the COVID-19 caseload across the country, he began the reopening process. However, he did make it clear that it needed to be done in a phased manner, so we didn't overtax the resources all at once. And then he encouraged the governors to look at their own states and their own individual data and do the same. He said that he supported them in doing what they felt was best for their state And just because we had federal supplies ready to go, we need to remember that not all the states had had them at their disposal. So they were still trying to get them. So President Trump said that he would let the states operate as the government should, with the state government taking care of its people. And the federal government would only step in if a state was exceeding its authority. So I want to take a look at just two states. Because one, I'm I'm from North Carolina. So we're going to look at North Carolina. Uh, well, I live in North Carolina. I'm actually from Florida. So I live in North Carolina and I'm from Florida. So I want to look at those two states. And I want to look at those two states because one, Florida has a Republican governor and North Carolina has a Democrat governor. But they were very similar and they're uh, closed down. So North Carolina started state home orders March 30th and they started phase one on May 8th. Florida started their stay-at-home orders on April 2nd, and they lifted theirs May 4th. Now, when they lifted theirs, their phase one is a little bit more lenient than North Carolina, but the schools also closed down at the same time at mid-March, so they closed down at the same time. Florida is currently projected to have 5,800 deaths. North Carolina it's been very interesting to watch our state because we started at about 1500 when I started viewing the IHME model. We dropped down to 374 when the state home orders were starting. And then when we lifted them, or we started phase one, we went up to about 1169 and then 1190. And when I checked last night, So this is May 14th. I checked last night, May 13th. I actually checked again this morning just to make sure I wasn't crazy. Uh, Those numbers were up to 4,400 projected deaths in North Carolina. So it's been really interesting to watch the different states, look at their population numbers and see what's being projected. That IHME model is actually taking social distancing in, but I did notice for Florida, that it doesn't account for the fact that florida has a 25 percent capacity for eating indoor restaurants so i you know they still have to update their models they still have to make changes as information keeps changing but for the most part when i look at when you type into google and you say you know how many covid cases in north carolina it'll pop up this chart And it'll tell you, you can look at every state, you can look at other countries, you can look at the United States as a whole. And so I call that my Google reference. So I look at that. I look at the IHME projections. I look at what the CDC is recording on their website. I look at what North Carolina is recording on their website. I saw what Florida has on their website. And the numbers are not that far off from each other. So right now to take a look at that model, to me, to see those numbers change, it becomes very interesting to look and see what the states are seeing. Also, something that's very interesting to note is that we had flattened that curve of the hospital beds. We had actually flattened the curve in a lot of the states to not only below all of the hospital bed resource, all the hospital beds that were available, but even below the ICU. Well, in the last week or so, that projected data has actually risen us above the ICU beds, but we are still a long way from the all hospital beds available. And I think that's important because again, that kind of shows that we had success with flattening the curve. That's the curve we said we were trying to flatten and it seems that there was was success there. So we are still not exceeding our hospital resources either in North Carolina, Florida, or a lot of other states. But when we look at these numbers, and even though we see that death number going up, but we see what the different states are doing, we see how the different states are being affected, we look at their population, the governors are consulting their experts, they're looking at their data, they're looking at their numbers, and they're making decisions. Florida has chosen to allow indoor eating at a 25% capacity, North Carolina has not it's a choice. South Carolina, their numbers are a lot less than North Carolina. Their population is also half of what North Carolina's population is. And so South Carolina is running differently than North Carolina. And the fact is, is that we just can't fear this virus because it's not going anywhere. Evolving viruses are a fact of life and they will continue to appear. They will continue to spread. And we have to continue on with our lives, but we have to do it with the remembrance that this is new. And we should not be reckless, but we should also be living our lives. We have now worked to fix the resource issue. We were working to flatten that curve. And we do need to go back to work. And we need to go back to work because this is how our country is designed to operate, big and small business. Our children have got to get back into school because really our country is not designed to have children at home remote learning when the majority of our families are working families. That is not a sustainable educational practice. We need to get back to our extracurricular activities because for many, that's the best way for people, young people, older people, everybody, that's a great way for them to let off steam by them doing their hobbies, their extracurricular activities, and in fact, even going to a restaurant, I talked to a family friend and he said that the one thing he misses the most is sitting in a restaurant with his wife. And it's not because of the restaurant food, but it's because they both work. And when they go to a restaurant and the kids are coloring their sheets, he gets to talk to his wife. And he said, having all these meals at home, it it's great to have family time. But they're cooking, they're eating, they're distracted, they're doing other things because they're at home. But in a restaurant, they just sit at the table. They have their glass of wine and they get an hour to talk and eat with each other with no real other distraction around them. And that is something that he looks forward to and something that he really misses. And so that's a way that you can step outside of your life. And those are the things that we're missing. And we all know this needs to be done. And everybody benefits when our country is active and working. We hear the platitudes that life will never be the same, and it won't be for some. And for some, there's going to be huge life changes. This has made them really look at their life and rethink some things. But for others, they want that pre-COVID life back. They want that the security of the life that they had. Their sports being missed, activities being missed, work being missed, restaurants that are being missed, and all of this is just waiting for people to go back to it. The federal government opened their checkbooks, and that's really important because they opened their checkbooks and they started writing checks to businesses and people that's going to have an impact on our financial future. And that CARES Act, it wasn't, it's not the last, it's not the last package. It's not the last huge package to get passed because of COVID-19. But our country can't sustain that debt. A friend of ours had a fortune cookie and it said, Blessed are the children that will inherit the national debt. And, you know, when I saw that, I chuckled, but it was a chuckling because of sadness, because it really is sad. You know, the fortune cookie knows that we can't handle that. We all know it. News articles and opinion pieces are rampant about the positive and negatives of the pandemic. And it's really based on agenda, not fact. Social media influencers share the bits and pieces that they want heard and repeated to sway the public towards their ideals. Headlines are the only piece of print news that actually gets read. And most of the time, the headline isn't an accurate portrayal of what's happening in the story. I can't tell you how many times that I see a headline and I scratch my head and then I read the article and realize the two are not connected at all. But it's that clickbait. It's that to get you to look at the news article. And then it turns out to be something different. How are we supposed to do our research if we're having to dig through every single article? Even today, when I was looking up information about the Public Emergency Fund, the article that I was reading, I went through a couple different articles because as soon as it would state... A sentence, it would then have this huge opinion that followed with it. And I had to dig through the article to pick out all of the facts of the information. But people just don't have that time, especially right now. Because people are home, doing jobs, working from home. People are having to educate their children. They're having to go through. And my kids, I'm going to say this, uh, my son is in eighth grade and he needed help with a math problem, but he doesn't have textbooks. And so I had to go on Google and I had to sit there and Google and I had to teach myself math so I could then teach my eighth grade son math. So when people are having to do that, how are they able to research everything? We should be able to trust those news sources to deliver us the facts, give us the truth. And opinions are great to have differing points of view And I am so glad that we live in a country that allows us to have an opinion. But that should be more of the rarity, not the norm. The news shouldn't be opinion. It should be fact. It should give us the information. It should tell us what we need to know. And then we can make the decision. Give us the information. And then let us process it. Don't tell us how to process it. Now we're contending with documentaries and with every person with a camera that can make a video, and there's just so much contradictory information. And while a lot of them do contain contain truth and have common sense in them, they are agenda driven. Their purpose is to sway. And it seems like they're made to empower the people, but really they're deepening the divide and they're creating an environment of mistrust that's based on fear. After this pandemic, can we ever trust a scientist again or an expert? And really, have we ever been able to trust our government? And I'm pretty sure I already know your answer with that. That's been the the million dollar question for I don't know how long. But the sad part is if the answer is no, then why do we bother? I mean, really, what's the point in having an expert? What's the point in having experts if we have to second guess everything that's said to us? We can't all be experts in everything and we have to trust other people. We really should be able to trust other people. I mean, even our medical professionals can't agree on the severity of this virus, and it's making it harder for the average American citizen to know what's right, what's wrong, what's a recommendation, or what's a must-do. You know, the models that are trying to predict the future, they can't even agree. And that's a little bit more understandable because they're predictable models. They're trying to use the best data and trying to come up with the best information. But the fact is, we can't live out of fear. We have to take the knowledge that we have, we have to know what the variables are, and we have to move in the best interests of everyone. And those decisions cannot be made out of fear. We have a much better understanding of this virus than we did back in January, but we still have so much more to learn. Every day, they're learning new things. I will be really interested when all of this is said and done to see what really the truth is about this virus. It's really all the information about this virus and how the state's handled everything. But right now, we're living in the midst of it. Yes, we should have prepared for a pandemic, but we weren't quite prepared and it doesn't really matter what was said in the past. It only matters that was said in the past so we correct it for the future, but we can't harp on that right now because it's not solving the problem right now. Placing blame doesn't solve anything in the present, but what it should do is propel us to be prepared for the future. You know, we weren't ready for this, this particular pandemic. And hopefully that is a lesson learned. Hopefully we are going to take COVID-19 and be prepared to know what's the best way to handle this if something like this happens again. We really shouldn't be caught unprepared again because this is a huge virus. This is a huge pandemic that has happened to us right now. And I really think as a country, we're going to learn from that. But right now we're in the middle of it. The fact is we needed to protect our hospital resources for the good of everyone. That's why we were flattening the curve. And we did that. Again, like I said, if you look at the models and you look at the data, we are under needing. We are under needing all of the beds available. So that's a success because we weren't, but now we are. So that's a success. And we are beating that invisible enemy. They call COVID-19 the invisible enemy. But COVID-19 has brought a lot of things to the surface and it is not the fault of COVID-19. A lot of these issues were already there. And so that's what we're gonna dive into in episode three. It's our government's response to COVID-19 and whether or not it's infringing on our constitutional rights. But I thought it was really important that first we discuss why we had the stay-at-home orders in the first place and that we remember why we did that and what happened because of it and where we are currently today. And so for me, I can say that we were successful so far with COVID-19 in a short amount of time. But successful against the invisible enemy, that depends on what you think the invisible enemy is. Thank you for joining me today for episode two, and I hope you will stick around for episode three.